Okay, good morning, church. Uh, I'm going to be reading the scripture for you today. If you have your Bibles with you, if you want to get them out now, that would be great. And if you don't have your Bible with you or you don't own a Bible, our Frontlines team, you can see them around here. Just put up your hand and they'll bring you a Bible. Awesome. And if you don't have a Bible, then you can take this home as our gift to you. So today we are reading from Acts 17, verse 22 to 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all to mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel the way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like the gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, family. It is good to be together today as we continue in our question series, answering some of the largest questions that come up about Christian faith and about life in general. Before we jump in, why don't we take a moment to pause? Uh, Maybe this is the first moment of pause you've been able to take all day long. So why don't you take a moment of pause, close your eyes, breathe, thank the Lord that he is alive, that you are alive, that he is good, and that we have an opportunity to worship him together today. So take a moment just to pause. And so, God, we do thank you that uh, today is a new day. We thank you that we live where we do. We thank you that we have been afforded the opportunity to be gathered in this space, free to worship you, uh, free to find multiple modes of transportation to get here. And we thank you that we now have an opportunity to talk about things, Lord, that not everyone has an opportunity to talk and think about. So may you do what only you can do in this time. We thank you that you are good. And I pray that we, each of us today, God, whether or not we are Christian, would taste and see that the Lord is good. And that you are good and that we can trust you because you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen. 
Well, two weeks ago, um, I, I spoke, and then immediately after I spoke, and then I went, I went home, but I wasn't feeling very well. And so I figured out that my doctor's drop-in clinic was open from about 12 till 2. And so we finished up takedown here at 1 o'clock. And so I got home, uh, someone had dropped me off, and I immediately got into my van and I drove to my walk-in clinic. And I went into my walk-in clinic, walked in, the room is completely empty. I go up to the, uh, the counter where the woman is, I say, well, you know, it's not very busy in here. She said, well, actually, you're patient number 24. We just have two doctors on today. So, you know, things have gone rather quickly. I said, oh, well, beautiful. That's amazing. She said, okay, where's your health card? Gave her my health card. She took me down immediately to a room. I sit in the room for about five minutes, have a book. I'm like, okay, this is great. Five minutes later, a doctor walks in. He, you know, he starts feeling my neck. He starts, you know, testing my head. He's like, okay, you're showing all the signs for strep. Okay, I'm going to give you some penicillin. Uh, here's your script. So I get my script. I drive to the pharmacy. I get, uh, I get my prescription then within 15 minutes, my, my penicillin, and I go home. So within an hour from arriving home from a union, I'm home and I have the medication that I, I need to get well. I mean, that, that's just like a cra- crazy story, right? Like that just went very quickly. Uh, I mean, I'm a, middle, I'm a middle-class white guy living in Canada who's been afforded the opportunity to go to the doctor, a drop-in clinic, and within an hour, I have the drugs that I need to get me better. I mean, think about that. Uh, A week later, I finished the prescription this past week now, right? So then Monday, I start feeling like my throat, like swelling up again. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna need to have to go to the doctor. So Tuesday, I get an appointment. My wife actually, she calls. She gets an appointment made with me for my doctor on Tuesday morning. So I go and see my doctor. She's like, okay, yep, they do the swab. Kate, you still have strep. Uh, We're gonna need to get you on another antibiotic. Okay, that's, that's great, okay. So I get the prescription, immediately go to my pharmacy, get a new prescription. This is great, okay? So then Wednesday, Wednesday night, I am shaking in fevers, okay? So then I go, I go to my bed, and I'm in my bed until Friday morning. And Friday morning, I finally get up out of my bed, and, and uh, I, go, I get super lightheaded, which could have been from the fact that I've been lying in my bed for the last, like, 36 hours or whatever whatever, something like that, or, or what could it be? And so we say, well, you know, I gotta go back to the, I've gotta go back to the doctor. And so we make an appointment, I go back to the doctor. So I go back to the doctor, and the doctor says, you know, we're gonna give you another prescription uh, because obviously those antibiotics aren't working. So I get a prescription for another antibiotic. So then I start another antibiotic on Friday. Uh, for all of you in the medical field, I am taking probiotics. Uh, I know that my system is just getting rocked right now. So I'm taking some probiotics. Um, But now I'm on a new prescription about, you know, 36, almost maybe 48 hours into it now by this time. Now, why am I telling you this story? Right? Like, why would I, I'm not just telling you it for the sake of, oh, like, you know, look at me. I've been really sick last couple weeks. Like, feel for me. I'm telling you this story because what is afforded to me in the last couple of weeks when I have a health issue is like ultimate freedom. I can get from my doctor, I can go to the pharmacy, I can do all of these things. I have incredible freedom, and that's one aspect of freedom that I have in my life. I could go down the list of like, okay, I want to make, Andre, let's have pad thai tonight. Okay, what do we need to make pad thai? Well, we need this, this, and this. Okay, I'll go to the grocery store and get it. Okay, that's in the area of like food, right? Okay, how about in the area of entertainment? Okay, what would we like to watch tonight? Oh my goodness, look at Netflix. We've got Netflix, we've got an Amazon Prime. Okay, we've got all those options. We've got what Apple is going to offer us. I mean, the options are endless. And then you start thinking about all the things that are afforded to you as far as the activities or things that you want to do in living in the city of Guelph. And Guelph is amazing. I mean, we have beautiful trails. We have beautiful and wonderful restaurants. Like, what a time to be alive. 
Like, do you ever stop to just think about that? Like, what a time to be alive in the place that you're alive in. Now, while this seems all excellent, and it is excellent, I mean, we truly need to recognize, like, what a time it is to be alive, and the God's graciousness in the midst of it, it's very easy to begin interpreting all of these things as that the freedom of myself, the freedom of the individual, is the ultimate good. That the end of my life is to get what I need and what I want. And if I cannot get that, then that is the enemy. Uh, Charles Taylor, in his book, The Secular Age, writes this about the new secular world order. He says this. This is now the new, the new way that we think about life. Let each person do their own thing. And one shouldn't criticize another's values because they have a right to live their own life as you do. So don't criticize someone else. The fulfillment for you, the freedom of the individual for you, is the most important thing in the world and any limitation to you. Don't let anything hold you back. Do whatever you want to do, what feels right inside of you. Just go and do it. And we live in a time here in Guelph (laughs) that you can do whatever you want and have ultimate freedoms. Now, why do I share this with you? Well, we're answering the question today of why is Christianity so exclusive? And as we answer that question, you have to start with the reality of the time in which we live. No wonder it's going to seem exclusive because everything else in your life you can do, it would seem. So of course it's going to seem exclusive. There's limitations. And we want to live lives without limitations, where we can have all of the options. Uh, Mark Clark uh, found this article in McLean's, and in his book he quotes it related to how people feel about Christianity. Many find it extremely offensive to claim there's only one way to God. A recent article in Canada's Maclean's magazine entitled, How Canadian Are You?, claimed, for instance, that more than 30% of Canadians were most uncomfortable around evangelical Christians. Now, 30% of Canadians, right? A similar percentage as other top untouchables like drug addicts and child abusers. The reason? Primarily because Christians are viewed as narrow-minded bigots who believe that there is, their way is the only right way when it comes to salvation. Now, that's, that's pretty intense. Right? Like, that's pretty intense. But think about the culture in which we live. When you leave today, if you have the access and the means, which many of you do, you can go pick up whatever you'd like for food on the way home. Thai? Do you want Thai? Do you want freshy? Health in a box? Like, think about the options. You're free. How dare someone? Like, imagine you, like, it's now weird and uncomfortable if people start saying, no, this is only for seniors, for example. Or this is only for, you know, this group of people. It's like, no. No, it's not. I want it now. So, of course, any idea of exclusivity is going to seem crazy. Enter what I believe is a perfect passage to look at is what we find ourselves in Acts 17, verses 22 to 31. Now, what's the context? What's the backstory? So we begin to answer this question. Why is Christianity so exclusive? Well, Paul finds himself in Athens. If you don't know who Paul is, Paul is an apostle. At one point, Paul is a man who killed Christians. He then becomes a Christian, an incredible case for Christianity as being a legitimate worldview that you ought to consider, a way of 
life you ought to consider maybe would be valuable and meaningful for yourself. And he finds himself in Athens. And rather than, you know, just taking a break, because Paul is living a quite a busy life as a missionary, taking the gospel to multiple places, he finds himself in Athens. And rather than, again, just taking a break, he's a true missiologist and evangelist. And he starts walking around the city, and he starts to see that the city is full of idols. And he doesn't just see that the city is full of idols. His heart then breaks. Because he sees the city is full of idols. He sees that these people have been taken by all of these multiple different gods. And so then what we read is then he, he then begins reasoning with people in the synagogues and in the marketplaces. He sees the city is full of idols. And now he says, okay, now I'm going to try to reason with them and show them that there's only one, one way. Now, as he's doing this, some people from the Areopagus, the Athenians, They hear that there's this guy in the marketplace in the synagogue that's presenting this new idea to people about Jesus Christ who's been raised from the dead. And so what they do is they invite him to come and present to them his ideas. You know, my modern day comparison would be, you know, you can go on YouTube and you can watch ideas from anybody that you want right? You you like TED Talks? You've got access to thousands of TED Talks at this point. They could be formal TED events. They could be TEDx events. You know, anybody's got an idea that they want to share. And what we read about this group of people in the Areopagus is that they would just listen to ideas all day long. And they'd sort of like think about them and like ponder them. Be like, we're so brilliant because we're listening to all of these ideas. And so they invite Paul. They say, Paul, come. We want to hear your idea. Bring it so that we can actually think about it. And so Paul comes in, you know, and this is, again, this is a group of people, you know, these are folks that are quasi-religious. They've got all of the options that are presented before them. In many ways, they could be very similar to ourselves sitting here today. The options are sort of endless in that sort of category. So what does Paul say? Well, Andrea read it for us earlier. We'll go through it again here line by line. Acts 17, verse 22 to 23. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. What does Paul start with by saying? He's a brilliant evangelist. He says, I perceive that you're all very religious. Right? And how does he know that? Well, he's looking about the city. He's saying, look, look, you've got objects of worship everywhere. You're all very religious. You, you've been tried, you've fixated by things. You've, your longings have been attuned. You, you have these affirmations and desires for things. You're all very religious. Now, you might not like it. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you'd say, look at all these like religious people around me. What I would say is that we in our culture are also very religious. We're all very religious. If you are a follower of Jesus, you think, well, maybe I'm the only religious person in the room. Look around at our culture. We are all very religious. We have deep longings and desires, and we're looking to things in the world to fulfill them. James K. Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, uh, I said to Andrea uh, this past week, this is probably going to be one of my favorite books of the year. I know it's only March, but I think it will be probably one of my favorite books of the year. He writes this, We need to become aware of our immersions. We need to recognize that our imaginations and longings are not impervious to our environments and only informed by our supposedly critical thinking. To the contrary, our loves and our imaginations are conscripted by all sorts of liturgies that are loaded with a vision of the good life. To be immersed in those secular liturgies is to be habituated to long for what they promise. 
Think about this. All of us are immersed. Everyone that you live around in your culture, in which you work, all of us are immersed in the world. And all of us have a good news story that we're living with. Maybe it's, you know, I would be perfect and fully satisfied if I could ultimately be free. Like maybe that's the thing. If I can find ultimate freedom, if I was meeting, I was with a a friend who's not a follower of Jesus recently. And for him, it was, you know, I just want to get out of this job because I don't, I don't get celebrated the one I want to get celebrated. I want to make more money. So once I get to the next job and I can make more money, that's going to be the thing. He's very religious about the fact that he wants more money because he's willing to change everything else about his life in order for him to make more money. I now know what his idol is right? We are all very religious. So Paul starts with that. He says, you're all very religious. Then secondly, he goes to say, you're also very ignorant. Now, I'm going I'm to help us understand something here because I think, again, the same thing has happened in our culture. But what he's saying to them is, you've become ignorant while trying not to be ignorant. What I mean by that, they've become ignorant as far as who this unknown God is, but they got there also out of an ignorance. Now, what's this ignorance that they initially wanted to get themselves out of? Well, they want to make sure that they're not missing any God. Right? So out of a desire not to be ignorant, not to miss any God, right? They, they conspire and they put together an idol to an unknown God so that they won't miss anyone. But then at the same time, they've become ignorant of who this unknown God is. So in a desire not to be ignorant that we'd miss a God, they become ignorant of the God that they fear that they might miss. Do you see what they've done? Their ignorance has led them even to deeper ignorance. And I would say that our culture has become ignorant while also trying not to be ignorant. Now you might say, well, how has our culture become ignorant by trying not to be ignorant? I think one of the ways is by removing exclusivity in favor of what is inclusivity. By excluding exclusivity and introducing inclusivity. Anyway, say, well, what is inclusivity? This is what it is, is that no one has a lock on the truth. All religions have the same measure of truth. They are just different paths to the same destination, be it God. So religion or some Christianity would say, you know, one religion is true. Atheism would then say, all religions are false. Inclusivism says, all religions are true. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, let's quote her. She says this, One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. Thanks, Oprah. Now, I I don't mean to mock Oprah because this is really the mantra of our culture. And the reason why we're asking the question is, why is Christianity so exclusive? But what's the problem with exclusivity? There's this... um, Oftentimes people will raise this, this illustration as it relates to this particular issue. And the illustration is an elephant, and then there's four blind men. And these four blind men all represent different uh, worldviews. You know, there's a priest, there's an imam, and there's a pastor, and all of them are blindfolded. And each of them are sort of walking around in a room, and there's an elephant there. And so each of them sort of grab onto a different part of the elephant. You know, one person's got the trunk, another person's got the tail, another person's got another leg. And so what somebody says is, you see, this is, this is why inclusivity is the way. Because, you know, look, they're all just holding on to the same thing, but they're blindfolded, so they can't see the rest of it. The problem with this illustration, the way that it breaks down, is that it only works if you have an objective view of the room and what's going on. Only if you have an objective way of seeing what is the truth that each of these are holding on to. It doesn't hold up if you don't have that sort of viewpoint. So what am I saying? 
is that while intending, attempting to be inclusive, inclusivity actually ends up excluding exclusiveness. Tim Keller writes this in The Reason for God. You can't evaluate a religion except on the basis of some ethical criteria that in the end amounts to your own religious stance. By saying, you know, we're going to remove exclusivity, you're then taking a position of saying, this is the way, and if you are exclusive, you are wrong. Do you understand what it's doing? So while trying not to be ignorant... You've become ignorant. This is what Paul is saying. So what does Paul say next? What and who does he identify as this unknown God? And then he just goes on about the beauty and wonder of this unknown God that they've, you know, tried to make up and they've become ignorant about. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now that quotation there, Paul is actually quoting a Cretan philosopher, Epimedes. See what he's doing? He's using their own arguments and philosophies against them and showing them who God is. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. This is Paul quoting a Sicilian Stoic philosopher. So what is Paul saying here in this? He's saying the unknown God that you have ascribed here is the God. This unknown God that you've simply added, you know, to the buffet of gods is the God. He's like, don't miss it. He's the God. Your ignorance has led you to greater ignorance and if you keep living that way, you're going to miss out on this God. Now, what does this tell us about the exclusivity idea? It says that this, well, all ideas are not equal. All gods here are not equal. This is the God. Next to the rest of them, they're nothing. All ideas are not equal. All belief systems are not equal. What we need to understand about this is why is Christianity so exclusive because it says, well, look at all the other ideas out there. They're not all good ideas. Look at some of the other bases and the, you know, the very grounding and the foundations of some of the other religions. Some of that stuff's bogus. You can't just say, well, you know, they're all, they're all legitimate. No, some ideas are bad. All ideas are not equal. What's the task of us as human beings then? If there is truth to be had, friends, we are responsible to weigh ideas, beliefs, and facts against one another to find the view of life that is most consistent. That's all we can do and hope for, is to look and ask questions about origin, to ask questions about morality, to ask questions about evil and suffering, to ask significant and serious questions and say, do these other views hold up? Did you know that there's a flat earth society? I'm not, I'm not lying to you. There's a flat earth society. There's a group of people that still stand behind the idea that the earth is flat. Okay. Well, you know, all ideas are, you know, there's no such thing as absolute truth. So 
you know, have, have your way. Earth is flat, okay? Meanwhile, you're making a judgment call inside. You're holding on to some sort of absolute truth that the earth isn't. So don't get all high and mighty if you believe there's no absolute truth to tell them that they can't believe in a flat earth. Who are you? Don't be so intolerant. Some ideas are bad, friends. So you can't go around saying that all things are, you know, equal. All religions lead to the same thing because some religions have terrible ideas. You know, I've, I've had some great opportunity to do some, do some fun uh, relationship building in my neighborhood. And I've met some incredible people, but I've also met some people that believe some really weird things. Like, there's somebody I, I've met that, that, that believes that they could be a, a witch or a wizard. And that they can cast spells and these sorts of things. Like, I just think those are bad ideas. I'm allowed to think those are bad ideas because as I look at the world, I ask questions of origins, I ask questions of morality, I ask questions of evil and suffering. I got to ask the answer the question, which view of life is going to be most consistent with what I can see? And I don't think the witch and wizardry thing and witchcraft is the way to go. I don't think that the earth is flat. You know, I believe 9-11 happened that wasn't a conspiracy of the U.S. government. Right? People believe that stuff. People soak it up. Look at YouTube on some of this stuff. People are believing these ideas. So in a desire for us not to be ignorant, we've become ignorant, and we believe that all ideas are equal. No, not all ideas are equal. And that's what Paul is saying. This God is better than the rest of them. So stop throwing out the unknown God. Start treasuring the unknown God with the rest of them. They're not equal. This one's better. He made everything else. He goes on. Paul clearly believes that his view regarding God is most consistent. So what does he say next? Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. See what he's saying? You can't even put this God in a... In an image. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Okay, Paul's now starting to like really press into us here, right? You know, he went from describing this incredible God and now he's going, he's switching to, it's time for you to respond. And what is he saying? He's saying this all-powerful, transcendent God is not going to overlook your ignorance for very much longer. And he will judge what you believe about him and who you serve. Now you might say, whoa, you know, Paul, you know, what's he saying? Paul is saying, well, salvation can only be found in one man, and that man is Jesus Christ. And you're going, whoa, Paul, that's exclusive. That's exclusive, Paul. You can't say it. How can Paul think this way? Well, here's another reason why uh, this realm of inclusivity can't work is because all beliefs cannot be true without fundamentally changing what they are. All beliefs cannot be fundamentally true without actually changing those fundamental beliefs. So let's just look at some of some religions' views on salvation. Islam teaches that there's only one God, Allah, and that Muhammad is his prophet. Heaven is a paradise of sensual pleasure for some, and hell is for those who oppose Allah and reject the teachings of Muhammad. 
the only way to heaven is to convert to Islam, which means believing the six main doctrines and practicing the five duties of Islam. That is at its base the fundamental teachings of salvation of Islam. What about Buddhism? Well, Buddhism, its founder was a Hindu who rebelled against many of the major tenets of Hinduism, believed they were unnecessary to reach nirvana. Okay, so Buddhism, do I choose Hinduism now? What about Sikhism? Well, Sikhism rebelled against Hinduism and Buddhism. And then atheism says, reject all belief in anybody who believes in God or anything beyond the material world. So if you say, friends, if you say, well, all of these things are essentially true, they contradict each other. They can't all be true. All of these cannot be true, and it's illogical for multiple religions to be equally true while at the same time contradicting one another. This is the basic principle of non-contradiction. If something is true, is opposite cannot be true at the same time and in the same way. And as we've seen here, most religions present a different case for how salvation works. They can't all be true at the same time. But what we want to do in our culture is we want to ignore these problems and pretend that they don't exist. Clark in The Problem of God writes this, There's great irony in the modern inclusivist position. While it's born out of a desire to not be judgmental or offensive, it might be the most offensive view of all because it says that every exclusive, exclusivist worldview is wrong and in doing so excludes all the exclusivists. Think about that. Now, we can all say that, but, you know, we can go from here and pick up lattes at Starbucks. And then we could go to Planet Bean and see what their lattes are like. And then we could go over to Red Brick Cafe and see if, they've, or if they're really in the latte world. Or we could go to the Common and pay cash and get a latte and see if they're really in the latte game. And then we could go try some ramen noodle. And then we could do all these different things. Think about how Western and privileged that is, though. Where we're like, you know what? All religions, they all teach essentially the same thing. Did you know that there have been people fighting for years in the Middle East from different religious viewpoints? Like Jews and Palestinians? And you go to them, and they've been in this fight for years, and you say, hey, you know what? You guys are going to be in heaven together. It doesn't really matter what you believe for the last number of years. How's that going to go over? And by you telling them that, how judgmental are you to say that to them? Who are you to claim that about them in their world? Now you're just trying to push your Western viewpoint onto the rest of the world. You can't do that. So it's all very comfortable when we can go home and sip Starbucks and compare it to everything else and say, no, you know, everything's going to work out. Friends, it doesn't work out. So in summary, what it makes more sense to say is that one is right and the other is wrong because truth says if something is true, its opposite must be false. Now, I think a note does need to be made. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't stand up for people of other religions in our culture. Okay, I would say that Christianity actually presents one of the best cases for standing with other people of religious faith in our culture, to say to both our government and our culture that we believe that spaces for freedom of religion is important, okay? Like, I think it's a totally bad idea to start signing petitions against other religions having worship spaces, 
Because as soon as their opportunity to do it is gone, they're going to turn around and start signing leases or start signing petitions so we can't have worship spaces as Christians. So what we're not talking about is anti-cultural pluralism. Right? Canada is a mosaic, it's said. Right? You look at our culture and we've got backgrounds of all different things. What, we're sa- what I'm saying here is, is the difference of cultural pluralism and metaphysical pluralism. Cultural pluralism in which we live People are free to believe what they want to believe and practice how they want to practice. As long as they're willing, obviously, to think about critically their views of the world and if they're consistent, vice versa. But we have to stand for cultural pluralism. That's why I'm part of the multi-faith team on campus, really, is to think about religious freedom on campus and in classroom and all these sorts of things. What we're not talking about here is metaphysical pluralism that says in the metaphysical world, all things are equally the same. No, not all ideas are equally valid, and each of these religions actually contradict one another. And avoiding that is not actually very helpful. Okay, so that's what Paul has presented, okay? Your ignorance is going to run out. God's going to call you to account. He's going to call you and judge you based on what you've believed, what you attest and true about him. How do people respond? When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject, right? Because they always just toss around ideas. So come back at another day. We'd like to hear this presentation again, maybe in a different way. You know, woo us maybe. You know, bring in some fire. You know, do what you got to do. At that, Paul left the council. Listen to what happens in verse 34, because clearly people saw Paul present that a decision needed to be made. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed among them was Dionysus, Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus. Someone converted as a member from the Areopagus to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Cool. So what's the response? Well, there is rejection, right? Some people are sneering. Resurrection of the dead, you're crazy. I'm never going to believe that. Some people are curious. We want to know more. And then other people come to know Christ. They convert. They convert to Christ. And, you know, you ask, well, why these three responses? Well, that's going to be the response when you share the gospel with someone. They're either going to, like, reject you, sneer at you. Ugh. Awful way of thinking. So exclusive. Or they're going to be curious, like, you know what, I'd like to talk about this a little more. Well, they'll say, you know what, I, I believe these ideas are valid. They, you know, they hold water and, you know, the Spirit of God's working in my heart right now and I, I want to follow Christ. I want to give my life to Christ. You know, that, that will happen. Right, three responses. You can expect three responses, right? But what's, why are, why are these three responses? Well, according to Paul, Right? Christianity says that there's truth to be had, and he believes that this truth will actually set you free. Right? If Paul wasn't standing up, Paul was just saying, hey, I just want to give you another idea that's equally valid to all of these other ideas, people probably wouldn't have converted. Right? Like, I just want to present you another idea. It's equal to the rest of the gods. You know, no big deal. No, Paul's saying no. 
The idea that I have for you is the truth. The rest of them are bogus. Choose. Well, what's the truth of Christianity? Salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus said it himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Peter, in Acts 4, verse 12, says this, there's salvation in no one else. Yes, friends, that's exclusive. But it's also why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so attractive. You ever thought about that? The exclusivity of it is actually, like if it's just equal, like why would, why would people die for something that's just equal to everything else? Why? There's no point. Why would Jesus have needed to come in the first place? If it doesn't matter if, he, if we believe in his death or resurrection, why would he need to come in the first place? If he didn't need to take our place, why would he have needed to come in the first place? Why is Christianity so exclusive? Well, there's freedom and forgiveness found in nobody else other than Jesus Christ. And if you remove the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, you don't need Jesus Christ. I hope this makes sense. Then you'll ask the question, okay, well, Jesus, this, tr- this truth is going to set me free. Well, how is this truth going to set me free? Well, to answer that question, we need, first need to start with what it actually means to be free. As we saw earlier, culture's definition of freedom is let each person do their own thing. And one shouldn't criticize another's values because they have a right to live their own life as you do. Now, there's, there's actually problems with this view of freedom. Uh, this is raised by Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God. He says, in this view of freedom, the freedom of the individual more than anything else, it's actually practically unworkable because freedom without constraint is impossible because real freedom comes from an actual strategic loss of some of our freedoms in order to gain others. It is actually practically unworkable to say the individual's freedom is, is better than anything else. Like when you get married, for example, you say no to every other option but you gain incredible freedoms in what you get to experience in in your relational life. To say the freedom of the individual is better than everything else is actually unjust because it denies what we owe others and we unavoidably belong to one another to some degree here on this world and in this earth. Another problem with it is that it can't stand alone. We actually need moral norms and constraints in order to actually live life with one another. But if it's like, well, just do whatever you want. There's, you know, everyone can do the thing. How do you actually live, like, in a, you know, a, a functioning community? You know, this is why people get so upset about things going on in the government. How dare you restrict us? It's like, well, sometimes restrictions are good, friends. This view of freedom is also corrosive of community and relationships. Relationships and community thrive from proper constraints, not individual autonomy. Jonathan Haidt. Uh, and his happiness hypothesis writes this, an ideology of extreme personal freedom can be dangerous because it encourages people to leave homes, jobs, cities, and marriages in search of personal and professional fulfillment, thereby breaking the relationships that were probably their best hope for such fulfillment. He's an agnostic. He attends synagogue because he believes some sort of religious observance is important in a person's life, but he's an agnostic but writes about true happiness and freedom in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis. And then this, all, this view of freedom is also incomplete because freedom is good only if it enables you to actually do something good. You know, at the end of the day, you've got to wake up and say, you know, who have I, I lived for? <laughs> you know? And for many people, it's just about themselves. 
So, so when we think about this then, that if the truth can set me free, and Jesus says the truth will set you free, what is the freedom that he provides? Well, the freedom in our culture, the way it defini- defines freedom, is that freedom essentially starts and it ends with you. Right? Your freedom starts and ends with you. What is freedom according to the Christian gospel and with God? Is that freedom starts and it ends with God. Freedom starts and it ends with God. From Keller. When a Christian grasped how Jesus saved us at an infinite cost to himself, how he emptied himself of his glory and took on a humble form to serve our best interests, it creates a grateful joy that inwardly moves us to want to please, know, and resemble him. Our happiness gets put into his happiness, and serving him becomes our perfect liberation." Then we'll become wrapped up in what he has given us, is what he has afforded us, that it's ultimately a gift from him. Then we live in submission to him. One of the main, major problems with this, you know, you drove here today on roads that were cleared for you in a vehicle that you probably feel you purchased for yourself. If you drove here, maybe a ride was provided to you that you somehow worked out with, hey, could you pick me up? Sure, I'll pick you up. You came to traffic lights that have been coordinated by the city of Guelph in which some of us pay taxes to because of where we live and our residences and all these sorts of things. You can very easily believe that your life is because of what you have done for yourself. Your freedom is provided because of what you have done for yourself. You got yourself your job. You decide how to spend your money. An example of the table. You have food on your table. Look at the food that I brought from the grocery store. But think about where that food ultimately came from. That food came from a grocery store. Where did it come from before a grocery store? A a farm, a distribution factory, right? Before that, some sort of farm. Uh, It doesn't just come out of a barn, though. It comes out of the ground that is needed to be irrigated, watered, seeds planted, you know, focused on the irrigation. Where does that ultimate irrigation come from? You know, some of it's going to be manual irrigation. They're going to do it themselves to make sure that the product is coming forward. But some of it is going to be very dependent upon the environment in which it lives, the heat of the sun, all these sorts of things, maybe greenhouses. Well, who's the ultimate responsible for all of that? God. We need to figure this out in our lives, that we need to begin connecting every little thing that is provided to us is a blessing and a connection to God to us. He is the one that gives us freedom, sustains our freedom, and allows us to live in freedom. God gave up. How did he do this? God gave up his freedom so we could experience true freedom both now and eternally with him. This is the crazy story of the Christian gospel and how it's diverse from, and different than any other world religion and that God gave up something for you. God gave up his freedom so you could have eternal freedom. The other world religions say give up all of these things for God. Christian gospel says God gave up everything for you. That you could never give up enough for me to get yourself with me. What I could do, though, is give up everything for you so that you could spend eternity with me. So while it's exclusive and that salvation is only available to, by Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, it's open and the invitation is to anyone that would take of it. 
So it's not come to our religion and, well, you have to be circumcised now and you have to go through, you know, there are these converting practices in other world religions. It is the message of Christ is available to anyone who would believe. Any racial background? Any financial background? It's available to everyone through Jesus Christ. And what must we do? As Paul says here, how do we respond? You might say, how do we respond? Well, as Paul says in the Areopagus, your ignorance can't last forever, friends. Because one day, Jesus will return and he will judge the living and the dead and you will be judged upon what ideas you believed and who you trusted in. And so as he was challenging the Areopagus today, may he challenge us today on the word of Christ. Who do you believe in? Because if you're holding on to all of the ideas, that will not bring you freedom because you'll be constantly trying to work it out. How am I going to work out all this obedience to end up where I want to be? Trust in Christ and let him change your life. Repent of your sin, your false thinking, your false way of believing in the end that you can provide for yourself and trust in what Christ has provided for you. Freedom starts and it ends with God. It starts with what he has done for you and it finishes with our time with him in communion eternally forever. This morning we have an incredible opportunity to actually respond with communion. And friends, I would love all of us to take communion today. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you don't believe in the truth of Christ as the way to salvation for anyone who believes, I would ask you not to take communion because you'll be misunderstanding what communion is. Communion is for those who have trusted in Christ as their salvation, as their righteousness. If you have not committed your life to following Jesus, I would invite you to do so today. That you would see that Jesus Christ is better than all of the other ideas that are out there. Because that's what Paul is saying, and that's what Jesus came for. When you look at him compared to everything else, Jesus plus nothing equals everything for what we gain from him. If you want to commit your life to Jesus, you can listen to me pray. You can repeat after what I'm about to say. Commit your life to Jesus Christ. We'd love for you to do that this morning. And then I'd encourage you to tell somebody. Like if someone brought you today, and you're not a follower of Jesus, like tell them like, hey, I want to trust in Christ. I want to trust in Jesus. I want to believe that he is the only way for salvation. I trust what he says, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. I do trust that there's salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ alone. I believe his idea is the best idea. And the Spirit of God might be doing something in your life and in your heart today. So I want you to do that. If you're serving communion today, I'd ask you to come forward during our prayer. And then as I finish our prayer, um, you can start distributing communion. As you receive the elements, I'd ask you to hold them in your hands. And then I'll come back and we'll take it together. But if you'd like to commit your life to Jesus today, please repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Jesus for who you are. I thank you for loving me 
I thank you for loving me enough not to leave me in my sin. And I confess this morning that I need your salvation. I cannot save myself. I trust today that what you have done for me is the best news. I want to follow you. I want the freedom that a life in Christ offers. I pray that and thank you that there are a group of Christians and followers of Jesus here. And I pray that they would, uh, that I would be open to them. And that you would draw me into community where I can learn to faithfully follow you. You are king. You are Savior. In your name, Jesus. Amen.